0: Lord, in this moment, by the power of your Spirit, may our one goal be to proclaim and hear your word, for the glory of your Son, and for the edification of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As you've probably come to realize, we live in a hyper- uh, a hyped-up experientialism. Everything is about creating experiences. You ever been to a, a theme park? It's one hair-raising experience after another. And even the things where you go and sit down are t- intended to be that. We've got uh, but 4D uh, movies and shows at these things. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these 4D movies. You know, it used to be 3D. You went into a theater, you put on the the glasses, and, and it made everything come forward. It seemed like it was coming at you. But now we have 4D. And so in the, in the scene, if it's cold outside, the room is now ice cold. If it's warm outside, the temperature raises up dramatically. If it's raining, they spray water on you. And you go on these things as, as part of your vacation. But what happens when you get back from your vacation but you need a rest or a vacation from your vacation. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with those kinds of things. But what happens when this agenda designed to create greater and greater experiences begins to creep into the church? Christianity Today, back in 2000, reported on what was, seemed at that time to be a new trend in large evangelical churches. They wrote that a particular church in Springdale, Arkansas had hired a well-known former Disney World designer of children's amusement rides to design two high-tech sets for elementary age worship areas. Toontown for the first through third graders and Planet 45 for the fourth and fifth graders. The fully animated cartoon town had 26-foot-tall buildings in it. The rationale behind the $270,000 project was summed up by the children's minister of the church, who said, putting a talking head in front of kids for an hour doesn't work. This is a visual generation. We need to use technology to the max, which also included a special baptistry built around a fire. Engine. When a child was baptized, sirens would sound. Confetti would be fired out of cannons to celebrate. In, in this tuned town, buzzers and bells were sounding. Lights were flashing from the ceiling. Car headlights on the set and bubbles out of the top of a giant bucket filled the room. The confetti streamers squirting out under the first few rows. Mist is sprayed to the crowd. According to the designer, it was just like going to a ride. At Disney World. This morning we're looking at the two ordinances. Baptism and Lord's Supper. Two experiences that are intended to shape our faith. In fact, Martin Luther said that the definition of a true church is the word rightly proclaimed and the ordinances rightly administered. So how, in a culture of such hyped experientialism, do these seemingly relatively mundane experiences make a church? That's what I want to address this morning, the significance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So if we think about baptism, the first thing I want you to recognize is that baptism is prescribed. Prescribed. It's prescribed by Jesus. All three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3, introduce the ministry of Jesus with the baptism of Jesus. In Matthew 3, we read that John the Baptizer, sometimes called the Baptist, but he wasn't Southern Baptist, uh, appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem. They're all going out to him. And they're hearing him preach. And they're being baptized. They're confessing their sins. Now John knew that he himself was not the Messiah. But that he was preparing the way for the Messiah. And one day while he's preaching. Jesus comes to him. And we read in Matthew 3.13. That Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. To John be baptized by him and we're told that john would have prevented him saying i need to be baptized by you and do you come to me but jesus answered him let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness now let's just recognize from the start that this is kind of weird this is all kind of weird i mean john is weird A guy that eats bugs and honey for dinner, who wears camel skin as his clothing. He's he's living out in a van down by the river, and he's proclaiming all of these hair-raising, preaching, screaming, calling people to repentance. And Jesus, the the sinless Son of God, comes to him and says, "'I need to be baptized.'" And, and and John recognizes this is this is wrong. This is out of place. Jesus, you are, are are the Lamb of God. You you are are sinless. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And you come to me. And John says, "It's all part." Excuse me. Jesus says, "John, it's all part of the plan." See, what Matthew wants us to see and hear that is this, this first thing that Jesus does is that he identifies with sinners. He's not saying he is a sinner. He's not saying he needs to repent. But he is saying, these are my people. These are the people that I came to save. This is my purpose, to come and bring the kingdom of heaven to my people, Jesus is baptized so that later we'll be able to see that He has come down to us. We might be able to come to Him. In fact, later in His ministry, in Luke 12, He's going to tell us that He has a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is His distress until it is accomplished. But that baptism that He's referring to is actually His Death, his death, his burial, his his resurrection. And so when he says he's doing this to fulfill righteousness, he's saying that baptism is the right thing to do because it shows my union with you. It demonstrates my death. It demonstrates my burial and my resurrection. They were accomplished for those I came to save. He said, so if you're going to be united to me, you need to identify with me as I've identified with you. Which is why at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we read in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and what? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, And the Holy Spirit, that this is the right thing to do, that Jesus has prescribed baptism for his believers. So if you are a follower of Christ and you have not been baptized, you need to follow Christ in this step of obedience. We're saying there's more here to be understood. Because when Jesus is prescribing baptism, he's not simply pointing to his union with us. In baptism, the experience we're proclaiming is also our union with him, which makes baptism not only prescribed, but also very personal. As each person is baptized, they are saying something about themselves. Romans 6, if you want to turn there, you can, but here's what it says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, to be clear, what Paul is referring to here is a spiritual experience. It's not actually the water that unites us with Christ. We are spiritually baptized into Christ by his grace when we are convicted of our sins when we repent of those sins and put our faith in his saving name but our baptism is precisely what demonstrates that and proclaims that when a person is baptized they are saying some very personal things about themselves number one they are saying that i deserve to die the person that is being baptized recognizes That the consequences of sin are death. And and not some generic, ethereal kind of, uh, 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 of, of, of general sinfulness to say, like, mistakes were made. They're saying, I, in my rebellion, in my treachery, in my sin against God, I have earned for myself eternal death, and it would be right for God to punish me. But we're, but we're also saying that we're recognizing at the same time that someone else has died. In our baptism, we are proclaiming that the very perfect Son of God, The sinless son of God who lived in perfect obedience to God's law, who was completely blameless, he died. He died a gruesome, agonizing death, enduring not only the scorn and scourge of man, but the very wrath of God. And he did it to redeem sinners that he came to save. And this substitutionary death creates a transaction in which he dies and pays the price for those who believe in him for all of their sin, past, present, and future, and exchanges with them the righteousness that he has. So our righteousness comes from him and our sin is attributed to him. We recognize that he died on our behalf but this person is also saying as they are immersed under the water that i have died paul would have us to see our baptism as a very declaration of our death i wonder if you've ever thought about your baptism as a death certificate remember after my daughter was baptized we were talking with some friends and and we said you know today we celebrated both a funeral and a birth and I got some strange looks about that because people weren't sure what I was talking about but Romans 6 verse 3 says do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death it is a death to past sins it is a death to past loyalties, it is a bath a death to past uh, politics and worldviews it is a death to ourselves and our selfish hearts it is saying that we are now dead to former things we are dead to the demands of culture dead to the demands of other people other religions anything that would put itself Above our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We have died. And we have been raised. Which brings me to the third thing that baptism is. It's not just prescribed. It's not just personal. But it is also public. It's certainly personal. Every aspect of your faith, everything that you, you, you believe is declared in this Personal baptism, but you are sorely mistaken if you equate a personal faith to a private faith. Your faith is personal, but it is never private. It needs to be lived out among other believers and in front of a watching world. And and to quote Bobby Jameson, baptism is where your faith goes public. And this is of crucial importance. You're you're not making your faith known by, by walking an aisle, by coming to an altar, praying a prayer. That's not what Jesus calls for. It happens in baptism. Baptism is the prescribed way of declaring your testimony. But in baptism, you're not the only one speaking. In baptism, the church, all of us... Are declaring something also. Namely, we are saying that you are one of us, that you are part of the people of God, you are part of the body of Christ, you are part of this new covenant community. Now, this is a, is a good time for us to take a little bit of a, a brief detour. It'll make sense in a minute, but to consider that, the, that God has always had a, a covenant community. From all the way back in Genesis, God has taken steps to distinguish his people from the rest of the world. And he's done that through covenants. We find a covenant with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1-3. to 3. We find a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9. We're told of a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17 and 22. We read of a covenant with the nation of Israel in Exodus 19 through 24. We read of a covenant with David in 2 Samuel. These were were promises. They were were, uh, agreements. They they were contracts. But they were so much more than contracts that were made by God to His people. And oftentimes those covenants came with signs, evidence of these covenants. The prime example is that of circumcision. Circumcision was a verifiable way that the men of Israel could be identified as the people of God. It was an initiation rite that they were a people that had been set apart from the world to reflect God's glory, His holiness, His righteousness, etc., to to the world. And and in some ways, baptism is similar to circumcision. But I don't think they, they are equal because they're different in at least two ways. First is that where circumcision threatened judgment for disobedience, baptism pictures a full, final judgment which has already fallen on Christ. Circumcision was in part a a sign of sanctions that would apply to anyone who disobeyed the covenant. They would be cut off from the people of God. And yet, baptism beautifully portrays the truth that Jesus has been cut off from the land of the living so that we would have eternal life in Him. Christ has already suffered the sanctions and there are none left for those who are in Him. And here's the second thing. Circumcision implicitly demanded that people renew their hearts. Over and over, the people of the Old Testament are commanded to circumcise their hearts. The idea was that Israel would consecrate themselves so that their hearts would match their status. Baptism, on the other hand, proclaims that God has circumcised our hearts. He has poured out His Spirit. He has cleansed us. He has renewed us. And this is where we would part company with our Presbyterian and Anglican friends. Because we recognize that the New Covenant community is not a group of people that in the middle of them there are some believers. But being a part of the community doesn't necessarily mean that you are ultimately fully and finally part of that community. But the New Covenant community says that anybody that's in that community is certain that they are and will be and fully and finally remain in that community which the bible calls the church there's no longer the threat of judgment there's no longer the fear of being cast out of the community because you didn't circumcise your heart you already have that you must be born again to be a part of it it's not determined by your keeping of the law It's in your faith in the one who has. Now, the point of all of this is that baptism isn't merely marking you as an individual Christian. The new covenant, the the gospel, the, the salvation we embrace is about creating a new people, not just new persons. Baptism shows the world, the group that you're a part of. On the one hand, loving God and loving our neighbors shows God's glory to the world. But baptism trains the spotlight on each of God's people and says, You want to see what God is like? Look at this guy. Look at this man. Look at this woman. This new life that Christians are called to live in is not just a, a private, uh, invisible decision to believe. There is a new community, a new people, a, a church. An entrance into that community requires a public promise. And that is why for our church, baptism by immersion, believer's baptism, must precede membership. That is how we declare that you are one of us. Now, if you've been baptized as a believer at another church, a gospel-believing church, we're happy to take their word for it. But if not, before we're satisfied that you're a member of our church, we must follow Christ's prescription to declare that you're part of the church. So that's baptism. It's prescribed. It's personal. It's public. It is how we show who's come into the church. Now let's consider the Lord's Supper. Now as Christ's people, we are a peculiar people. We're intended to be a peculiar people. And admittedly, some of you excel more at that than others. But one of the things that makes us peculiar is the signs and the ordinances that distinguish us. Baptism is the, the initiating ordinance into the people of God. It is the jersey that tells the world whose team you're on. And as a Baptist church, we believe that the Bible insists that you wear the jersey if you want to play on our team. And then we come to the Lord's Supper, which is peculiar in its own right. Something for many, it seems, very mundane and insignificant, and, and steps have been taken to make the Lord's Supper more exciting in similar ways that have been, been made to make baptism more thrilling. Right. In fact, I, I attended such event as, as a senior in high school. I, as a senior, I, I went on a retreat with some friends to it, that were part of another church, and I have to say, it was, it was kind of a strange thing from the get-go. Um, part of the, 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 the thing in this, it was, it was all very secretive. You, you never knew what was going to happen next, whether it was Bible study or a team building activity or prayer time or rest time. In fact, they wouldn't even allow you to have a watch or to look at a clock. But one of the parts of that weekend was a Lord's Supper service, which would have been weird enough in itself to To have a Lord's Supper service with just a a group of high schoolers on a retreat. But what was so strange about it was the way that it was performed. The elements were typical, a wafer and, 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 and grape juice. But it was served by clowns. Not foolish people, mind you. But clowns. Big shoe wearing, face painted, unicycle riding clowns. The whole thing was so Bizarre. Now, as a teenager, I didn't have the greatest grasp of what the Lord's Supper meant, but I knew this couldn't be right. Now, to be fair, there have been less than, I think, helpful ways that I've performed the Lord's Supper. Clarissa and I took the Lord's Supper at our wedding to to the exclusion of everyone else that was present. And as I look back on that, I, I don't think that was wise or, or helpful. But, but all of this raises the question, what is the Lord's Supper? Well, it's a meal of remembrance. Do you remember Jesus' last night with his disciples? In Luke twenty two fourteen, we read these words. When the hour came, he reclined at table, the apostles with him, for you do this in remembrance of me for Jesus and his disciples they had gathered to remember to remember the passover the passover was that event in israel's history when they had been living in egypt as slaves specifically that night when god declared he would liberate the israelites by bringing the angel of death to destroy the firstborn of every Egyptian. But what protected the Israelites was not their ethnic distinctives. It was not their morality. It was not their victimhood. It was the sacrificed lamb whose blood covered the door of each Israelite family. But on this last Passover, Jesus is giving his disciples a new Meal to remember, a meal that would commemorate a new rescue, a rescue not from the slavery of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. Just like the Passover had recalled God's rescue of Israel, the Lord's Supper reminds us that God has rescued us. and The the bread and the cup, they represent His blood and His body that were shed for us. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are to look back and recall the life-giving sacrifice of this perfect Lamb, our Savior, Jesus. And as we take it, we get to use all of our senses to remember what Christ has done. As we taste the bread, we remember that as real as the wafer is in our mouth was the Son of God who came and lived and gave up His life. That you would have life. As we taste the sweetness of the cup, we recall the sweetness of having your sins forgiven. Because Jesus poured out His blood for us. There are so many gospel truths that we remember and we relish as we take the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of remembrance. But it's also a meal of Togetherness. The biblical teaching on Passover assumed that it would be taken with families. And when Jesus takes this Lord's Supper with friends, he's making them family. And he even tells us how that can be. He'll say later in Luke 22, when this, he'll say, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant, this creates a new people. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the bread and wine transform into something that they're not. Instead, he's naming the sign by what it points to. And because Jesus makes the bread and the cup a sign of God's new covenant promise, he commands his disciples to repeat this in remembrance of him. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the Passover memorial was regularly repeated, so now the Lord's Supper is to be regularly Repeated and, and it points to this definition of this new identity, this new community of those who have been saved by Jesus' death. See, baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be understood as two sides of the same coin. Both of them are signs that show the identity of God's new covenant people baptism is the sign of membership in the new community in the church and lord's supper is the sign of fellowship and discipleship in that new community and it's this fellowship that paul will point to again and again and again we read it earlier this morning but i'll read it again the cup of blessing that we give thanks for is it not a sharing in the blood of christ the bread that we break is it not a sharing in the body of christ now listen Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For all of us share in that one bread. What Paul is saying is that the vertical relationship that we now enjoy with God because of Christ's work on our behalf makes hugely significant horizontal relationships. The sharing of the body of Christ there is not simply the the physical flesh and bone body of Christ, but it is the members, you and you and you and you that are the body. And this is something we must not forget as we take the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, the very next chapter, Paul will criticize the church for not rightly discerning the body of Christ. They're in trouble But it's not because they've messed up their relationship with Christ, though they have. But it's because they fail to recognize that every other person around the table is part of that body. And so there is love and deference and humility that is to be demonstrated. Brothers and sisters, we are one body who participate in the Lord's Supper. To, to quote another brother, every time we pass the Lord's Supper plate, every time we share the elements with one another, what we are saying is, blessed assurance, Jesus is yours. Which is why when church discipline is carried out, what is forbidden is participation in the Lord's Supper. That is the, 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 the climax, the, the, almost the, the last going of Church discipline when it finally comes to that. Because what we're saying is that this person who seems to be so entrenched in their sin, and until they repent of their sin and reconcile in whatever way is necessary, we're not sure that we can say that that particular person is part of Christ's body. And if we can't in good confidence say that, and we can't extend them to this privilege. We are saying the people who are dining around this table, as insignificant as it may seem, are people of eternal significance and value, which is why we don't just let uh, young children take this. Because it would be wrong to, to communicate to them and to other people in the church that unless they have faith in Christ, unless they are part of the church, we can't allow them this opportunity. The last thing we see here is that this is a meal of anticipation. It's a meal of remembrance, a meal of togetherness, now a meal of anticipation. Luke 22 again, Jesus said he would not eat and drink this meal with them until he ate and drank it again with them in the kingdom. He knew exactly where the next days would take him to a bloody cross, to a stone tomb, but he knew that it would not end there. He knew that his path was the path to victory. And we see an initial fulfillment of that in Luke 24. You know the story after Jesus is, is raised from the dead. He's, he's walking along with some disciples who, who are prevented from recognizing him. They don't know who he is. And he's explaining to them why the death of Jesus was necessary, as was the resurrection. And they convince him, convince him to stay and eat with them. And do you know what happens? He takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. The very same things he had done in that upper room and their eyes were opened. And they later say, did our hearts not burn within us? When we take the Lord's Supper, our hearts ought to burn within us as we see what Jesus has accomplished and what He yet will accomplish in Revelation 19, 6-8. We see not only we look forward to what He has done, but what He will do. Listen to these words. Then I heard... Which seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the line. Fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has chosen a meal not only to remind us of His sacrifice, but to remind us of His victory? Do you know what that meal is called in Revelation 19? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you come to the Lord's Supper, don't look back merely at what Christ has done. Do that, but look around and recognize that what He has done for you, He has done for so many others. And look forward with hope. Because despite the sin that you had, despite your lack of righteousness, despite your your wickedness, your evil, your sin, your sorrow, your selfishness, Christ has saved you he has made you one with himself and you look forward to that day when there will be no more sin there will be no more sorrow no suffering no evil no pain no tears just joy an unspeakable joy and you will sit down with your savior and you will feast Brothers and sisters, here is the takeaway from all of this today. These two signs or or ordinances, whatever word you want to use, they exist by God through the church to demonstrate and assure your future and final salvation. They declare these things to you and to me and to the watching world. And these signs, these ordinances to bring humility, joy, love, in your walk with Jesus, in your fellowship with each other. This is not just a snack and a swim. These are church-shaped, faith-nourishing signs of your salvation. And in them, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. You have been good to us. You have saved us. And you have given us precious reminders of that salvation. That when we begin to wonder, we can look. At what you have done. What you are doing. And what you will do. May these nourish our soul. In Christ's name. Uh, your decision to, 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 to follow Christ, which we ultimately made public in, uh, in baptism, or you wish to join this fellowship, uh, you can do that during our uh, song of response. Stand as we sing. And faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth, as we share, as we share in his. Son.